Welcome to the Millionaire Secrets Podcast, where the most successful people in the world share their secrets to help you create the awesome life you desire. Welcome to another episode of Millionaire Secrets. This is Jeff Lerner, your host. Uh, excited as always to be diving into the minds and habits and success secrets of some of the world's most successful people. Now, this is going to be a fun one. I am joined today by Rebecca Zung, who is, uh, if I guess, she, I guess once an attorney, always an attorney, but she's uh, formerly in her practice was recognized as one of the best lawyers in America, part of the legal elite with a focus on family law, did a lot of divorce stuff, but she's had a really amazing uh, transition and journey into creating training and content and building an information and media business around this just fascinating subject of negotiation and specifically dealing with narcissists. And um, it's like one of those things that's kind of like cancer. As soon as you say the word, everybody's like, oh yeah, I know someone or I know someone who's had to deal with that. And I, it, but yeah, you're the only person, Rebecca, that I know that's like explicitly said, this is what I'm focusing on. And it's so cool. I'm excited to dig into it. And I'm really grateful to have you on Millionaire Secrets. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I um, love everything that you do, and I'm excited about having this conversation with you. Well, well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate um, from someone like yourself that, that compliment. That, that means a lot to me. And for some context for everyone, this is not our first conversation. Um, I got to be a guest on your very wonderful podcast, which I highly recommend everyone check out. And uh, we got to talk about bullying, which you know, it's a lot of childhood stuff. And I don't know it, it, at the level of childhood, whether or not um, you're actually formally dealing with narcissists, because I hopefully at least children aren't so fully formed yet that you can label them that way. But uh, it was, it was some tough talk about dealing with hard things. And uh, sadly, it doesn't end at childhood for a lot of people. It carries on. Uh, only sadly, the, the opponents get smarter and more calculating, right, than just your schoolyard bully. So um, maybe we can we can start with just how did this become your thing? How did you get you know hone in on this and 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 you know frankly to do so in a way that wasn't just like oh this is interesting but like with the passion and the vigor that you have or you're really on a crusade. Tell me about uh, how this got started. <laughs> crusade is a good word for that actually because that's how I kind of feel in a lot of ways. Um, so I've been a lawyer for over 20 years, and I've only ever practiced in high net worth, complex divorce litigation. So that has been my focus for a long time. And uh, recently, in the last couple of years, I decided to make a change in my life and start focusing on doing other things. So I merged my practice with two other guys and decided to give myself the space to start focusing on other things. So the first thing I did was I created, uh, well, I, I had been speaking on negotiation for years and years and years because I had created a talk on negotiation like in 2003 or something, back when I was like trying to develop my practice as a younger lawyer. And um, so I spoke on negotiation literally all over, including being a keynote at one of the American Bar Association conferences. And so, I mean, I really know negotiation. So that was a natural fit for me. The narcissist part is a whole other story. So I realized uh, last year that I was dealing with two narcissists in my own life. I came across a book that I really started to read because I was thinking about maybe doing a video on how to negotiate with a narcissist and realized I was dealing with two covert narcissists who had targeted me and victimized me. And, you know, I'm talking last year, not like before I became a lawyer. Mm. And as I realized how stealth and cunning and manipulative they are, I thought, wow, I really could apply what I've learned about negotiation to narcissists. And I had already written a book. I had a book that came out just last year on negotiating. It's called Negotiate Like You Matter. And 
this was really kind of as that book was coming out, I was starting to have this realization. So I decided to start trying to do a couple of videos on YouTube on this topic. And they just started blowing up. So that's, you know, I ended up creating a program around it called Slayer Negotiation with a Narcissist. And um, it's done very well. Unfortunately, there are a lot of narcissists in the world. So, um, and, and it's kind of cathartic for me. And I definitely have a passion for it because of what I experienced in my personal life. And I do want to say a little disclaimer. It was not my husband. It was uh, <laughs> my, I always have to say that because my poor husband, people might suspect it was him. Um, not my husband. It was somebody kind of in a business setting and somebody kind of in our extended family. So, yeah. Huh. Well, uh, yeah, that is probably actually a really good disclaimer because especially with your background as a divorce attorney, like it was probably just would come to people's minds. Um, so, I, and I don't want to pry into your personal life, but for, let's say for illustrative purposes, is there anything you can share about what that experience was like or what the context was particularly that might be useful for people that are trying to spot it in their own lives? Yeah, and I will say, and you and I talked about this on our my show. Um, you know, I had experienced being bullied as a child. Um, I'm half Chinese. There was really nobody else that was half Chinese when I was a kid, other than my brother and my cousins. You know, right. um, so you know, any time you're different, you get singled out when you're on the playground, and um, it was a horrible experience for me. And I thought I had worked through all that stuff. I, you know, I became a lawyer. I did all these things. I have a huge, amazing circle of friends. I've, I've dealt with therapists and coaches and I've had all those people in my life who've helped me. And I thought I was done with whatever that those bad, yucky feelings were. Right. But, you know, the universe is a funny thing. Sometimes it goes, you know what? Let's make sure you're okay. <laughs> like, let me give you a test. And so I got a test in the form of these people. And I found myself feeling a lot of those same things again. They were kind of flooding back. Um, you know, it was um, lining themselves up with other people and um, trying to make me feel like I'm excluded or that they're talking about me and saying things about me that aren't true and, um, you know, passive aggressive types of things because these were covert narcissists. So it was, um, you know, saying that they're going to do something and then not doing it and then um, trying to gaslight me when I would try to say, you know, what's going on with this and, um, you know, trying to make me think that we had had a conversation about that. Oh, we talked about that. You agreed to that. And, and I knew that we'd never had that conversation. Um, you know, money issues, um, you know, uh, how come I don't see, you know, the money going into the account like it was supposed to be, oh, I didn't know how to, uh, run the charge card for the account. So I put it in my account, I'll transfer it over and then it never gets transferred. Um, you know, just constant little things like that little. And then, and then the other thing about both of these covert narcissists that I thought was a really strange because narcissists only attach themselves to people who have lots of value that I, and, and then I remind my community all the time, they don't attach themselves to you because you have no value. They attach themselves to you because you have so much value mm -hmm. because they want to suck that from you. And so in both of my instances, um, my experience was that these people were actually copying a lot of the things that I do um, as their own, copying um, how I dress, how I talk, things on social media, um, stealing my ideas, um, trying to pass them off as their own, um, things like that, which was also very, very strange. Um, taking credit for ideas that were mine, um, just on and on and on. It was just like constant, constant. So 
I guess, first of all, you talk about covert narcissism or narcissists, which is, I guess my, my question is, is there an overt narcissist? It would seem that part of narcissism would involve a level of, you know, skullduggery that it's just not so obvious and on display. Yeah, so the overt or grandiose narcissist is more of the one that you think of when you think of a narcissist. It's that person who's always going around saying how great they are and and that they're the best at everything and that this was accomplished because of them and that everybody else is an idiot and they're the only ones that end up having good ideas or, or whatever. They're, they're always out there telling everybody how great they are. And, you know, I expect the best table at the restaurant and I want the best seat in the house or, you know, they're, they're that type of a person. And, and I always have to remind people that the other half of narcissism, by the way, is that they have no ability to have any sense of compassion, care, love, or concern for another human being. So it's not just that they're bragging, it's also that they don't have the ability to feel anything for anyone other than themselves. Um, but the covert narcissist is more under the radar. You know, they've kind of figured out that it might not look so good to be out there bragging and telling everybody how great they are. So they use more sort of underground methodology to devalue um, and debase their targets. So their, their methodology is more like, passive aggression, lining up people to kind of triangulate against you, say things, smear campaigns, say bad things about you to other people and make, make them think that, you know, there's something wrong with you, um, you know, things like that. So they're a little bit more under the radar and they even a lot of times kind of come across as a victim, like that you're the one that did something to this person and, um, you know, that you bullied them, that you're the narcissist and they'll go tell everybody that kind of thing. So is, a, is an overt narcissist just a dumber narcissist who's just not as, not as good at subtlety? I wouldn't say that because the overt narcissist actually um, gets very far a lot of times in business or, um, you know, situations because they are very good at, you know, my dad used to say, whatever you say, say it with authority and people will believe you. And a lot yeah. of ways that's really true. And so I think a lot of the grandiose narcissists are the ones that find their way all the way at the, you know, to the CEO level of major companies or something like that. Yeah. You know, I actually, it's so funny. This is such an illuminating conversation. I'm thinking of this one guy who clearly I won't name names because I don't want to get him refocused on me. But um, That's why I don't name names of my. Yeah. yeah. But he was so shockingly, I remember my own mental, sort of quandary and trying to reconcile this person. He was so shockingly arrogant that it defied all sense of, of, of propriety or how I was raised. Like, I was like, who, who could actually get away with this and not literally just not be embarrassed to hear themselves talk? Right. Yeah, but he yeah. did it so consistently that eventually I actually started to accept a certain amount of it as like it, it nor you know the brain is a normalizing machine, and eventually I started to normalize the way this guy was, and I, I realize now, frankly, there's probably a chance I could have gone toward buying into some of it because he he was so casual about being you know exceptional from his own perspective. Like you say, if you, if people say it with enough authority, eventually you kind of buy into it. And so, for you, do you have a lot of people where part of what you're teaching them is like? raise your standards and don't tolerate this because if you do eventually you will start to it'll start to become normal yeah i mean i i don't put it in terms of raise your standards um because i guess that in a way sort of devalues the person and says obviously you have low standards now or well, something like that you know what i mean but i do put it in terms of uh you need to create boundaries i mean yeah. it, it I personally, if you can cut that, it's like a cancer. If you can cut that, like you said at the beginning, it is a cancer. If you can cut that part of the cancer out of your life, uh, that will help you tremendously. Um, even then, you still have PTSD for a while. But uh, I, 
you know, I have been able to hopefully, God pr- please, uh, can, can keep these people out of my life and let's hope it stays that way. Um, and, uh, you know, that's been wonderful for me. And I always say like the grass is greener, the air smells sweeter. It's all so much better. But the um, people who are out there who cannot get rid of them, you know, maybe it's somebody in their family or something, mm-hmm. you know, where they just are not, or, or they're just not in a position to leave them yet, you know, for whatever reason. I would just say creating really strong boundaries and just starting to, kind of stand up to them a little bit in the form of, I'm not going to allow you to disrespect me. I'm not going to allow you to talk to me that way. You know, if when you're ready to have a conversation with me that's productive, great. Or, you know, or or if they're trying to gaslight you and tell you that you had a conversation about something, you can just say, no, we did not have that conversation. That did not happen. Um, Now, obviously, for people who are in situations where they're afraid um, of some sort of physical backlash or something, you know, in those instances, I recommend that people go to, you know, shelter for abused women or whatever they need to do to protect themselves. But um, to, to the best of your ability, create really, really strong boundaries for your own self-respect. And I will say this, And this is what I always say is the not-so-secret secret, secret, and that is that narcissists are actually the most scared little creatures on the planet. They don't have any sense of self. They're very fragile inside, and they create all this stuff around them to try to get some sense of value out of the external world. And so that's why they attach themselves to people. That's why they devalue people. That's why they treat people poorly. Um, All of that is to try to put a salve on this very wounded ego that they have. And um, it's to cover the pain, basically. So, yeah, I mean, and that 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 rings so true based on, I guess, my my limited experience. Although as we're talking, I'm realizing at least this one guy, I mean, there's some other people in my life that I'd like have to really assess and be like, were they really a narcissist or do I just not like them? So it feels good to call them that. But this one guy told everything you're saying is just so spot on, which begs the question for me, at least anecdotally or, you know, you watch these TV shows, you know, Dateline about, well, so-and-so killed his wife and, you know, later was diagnosed as a raging narcissist. So maybe it's a stereotype or, or a, a, an assumption or overgeneralization, but are the vast majority of narcissists men? No, definitely okay. not. That's just how TV makes it out. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, the two I had to deal with were, were both women. Um, oh. I mean, I personally, this I don't have any um, scientific da- data on this at all. But I will say that I personally think that it's probably more uh, of the narcissists who are women, they are probably more covert yeah overt because they know that you know being out there saying i'm the greatest is usually not it's frowned upon for women you know um so i would say they're probably more on the covert side but no i mean in fact if you look at my youtube subscribers which i now i'm I'm close to a hundred thousand youtube subscribers um I think it's like 60, 40, as far as who my followers are, 60 women, 40% men. Yeah. How long have you had that YouTube channel? Um, I really only started, I, it's been created for years, but I really right. only started focusing on it in um, January, February, March this year. Yeah. Okay. So less than a year to grow mm-hmm. almost a hundred thousand subscriber following. That's, I mean, that's tremendous growth, which I think only, only speaks to the point, which is this is such a widespread um, but but it feels like very neglected subject. I mean, there's no, I, I I was never I never remember seeing a class in college on you know really how to deal with personality disorders in general, much less narcissism. Right? I mean, are are you the the leader in this field, or is there even a field, or is there just you know Rebecca standing there? <laughs> 
Certainly from the legal negotiation perspective, I'm pretty much the only one that's talking about it. Um, There are a lot of psychologists and life coaches out there who are talking about it. Um, But, you know, the interesting thing is that the psychologists that I've spoken to have said even all the way through their doctoral program, it never came up. So they're, they're kind of, you know, self-taught and, and that sort of thing. There is sort of this whole vocabulary that's come out around it. And many people have written a lot of books on it now at this point. But um, I, you're right. It hasn't, wasn't really taught that much in college. And um, I'm pretty much the only attorney that's talking about how to deal with them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that inside of specific almost professional tracks, I would say like MBA programs, law school, medical school, frankly, professions that come with them a label of respect and esteem probably are more likely to draw in narcissistic personalities who want that label and that esteem. That's, I mean, I'm sure there's some guy out there. That's the reason he became a doctor is because he wanted the power, right? Um, So it is kind of strange that none of, at least those tracks don't actually tackle person. And maybe you tell me you went to law school, but do they ever talk about the personality science? Never, 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 never. In fact, they didn't even teach us how to practice law. I mean, we learned, you know, about old cases, Marbury versus Madison. And, you know, I mean, the theory around how we got to where we are. And there's like, some black letter law that we learned, but it was more like um, general concepts of contract law or general concept, not the specific law in in a particular state. You don't even really learn that until you go um, study for the bar. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, unless you go to a state law school, I think they teach certain state laws, but no, I mean, psychology, no, not even close. And as a divorce lawyer, I've been part psychologist for years as right. a divorce lawyer. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so one of the things you said that I, I, I made a mental note to circle back to, you mentioned about narcissists, narcissists having effectively, you know, to paraphrase, a total lack of conscience, almost a lack of awareness um, or an inability to empathize and have compassion, I think is what you said. Um, so that. Is there, that begs the question for me then, is there a difference? And if so, what is the difference or the distinction between a sociopath and a narcissist? Because what you said is kind of how I identify sociopath, just total lack of empathy or conscience. Yeah, I mean, my understanding of it, and, uh, you know, of course, I'm not, I'm, I say, I'm not a psychologist, but I've learned enough to figure out what I need to know to help people negotiate with them so that they can make progress and get what they want. So, but my understanding is that the sociopath uh, and the sociopathic narcissist, which is what we call a malignant narcissist, they have no problem. They not only have no conscience, they have no problem destroying another person's life. You know, so a malignant narcissist has this overlay of sociopathy. So in a divorce setting, this is the person who might accuse a totally innocent person of molesting their own daughter. Right. right. Of, you know, uh, uh, of being an alcoholic or a drug addict to their uh, employer or employees, Um, you know, literally ruin their life for no reason whatsoever. They have no conscience about that. Normally the other narcissists at least know what they should and shouldn't do so that they still look um, like they're normal and people, you know? Yeah, actually, as you said that, it reminded me of something from my own world experience, uh, not me personally, thankfully, but a case where there was a divorce and the woman accused the man of exactly what you just said, which had absolutely no basis in truth. And I guess, yeah, that was that answered my other question about narcissism being women, because I'm pretty sure based on what you just said, she was one. Um, but so the sociopath, it almost seems like there's a there's a reveling or a thrill in the hurt. Whereas a narcissist is probably new, more neutral. A pure narcissist, not malignant, is more just neutral on the hurt. It's just what's in it for me. 
Correct. Is that fair? Correct. And, and I look at it all as like a continuum, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, because, you know, a lot of people will say, um, you know, because like on my um, YouTubes or something, I might say, oh, I've been recognized as one of the top 1% of attorneys. And, you know, 99% of my followers love me. And then I'll always get this one person here and there that'll go, oh, you must be a narcissist because you just said that, you know, and it's like- right. It's like, no, I want you to know that I know what I'm talking about so that, you know, you'll feel like you can listen to me. That kind right. Of yeah, so I, it, I, I think it's a continuum because we all want to feel seen, heard, and know that we matter. All of us as human beings, that's just part of being a human. And, um, and there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. I mean, that's why I called my book Negotiate Like You Matter because we all want that. But... Um, I think that, you know, as you go toward the end of the continuum, it's like, uh, I care about other people and I want attention from, you know, I want to feel like I'm seen, heard and valued, Um, you know, and then as you get down toward the end, it's like, I don't really care that much. I only want to be here. And then, you know, you get to the narcissism level and it's like zero for the other person and a hundred percent for me and, you know. Uh, and then you get into the sociopathy, which is a whole other thing. Well, that's interesting to view it as a continuum because, um, you know, I suspect most people would would prefer it to be binary so that it can be others and not them or, you know, and they're never the two shall meet. Um, it, it brings up for me, have you ever read the book? And I don't want to get into a d- discussion of a book if you haven't read it, but have you ever read the book People of the Lie? No. By Scott Peck. Um, I will simply say this for you and for the whole audience. Um, it's, it's a profound book that attempts a scientific analysis of human evil. And it's written by Scott Peck, who's a psychiatrist, but also a, you know, a, a publicly a Christian. And he basically says, look, we can hate evil all we want. And this is, I feel like is kind of maybe along the lines of what you do. We can hate evil all we want, but as long as we're moralizing and as long as we're judging, we're not, we're not pragmatizing or, or creating any, you know, treatment or response mechanisms so for him as a as a medical doctor psychiatrist it was like let's let's look at human evil through the lens of of an illness and try to diagnose it try to codify it try to you know whatever and in in his ultimate conclusion not to spoil the book but his his ultimate conclusion was that the two contributing components to human evil are narcissism and laziness Mm. and you know, I read the book years ago. I've reread it in part since, but I've never been able to forget that. Mm-hmm. Narcissism conjoined with laziness creates the ultimate breeding ground for human evil. Mm. And, and, and I'm curious, again, I know you haven't read the book, so maybe it's not fair, but in, in abstract, forget about the book, but just that idea of like taking the narcissist and combining it with a person who's essentially too lazy to even do a hard thing. And that's it's almost to like battle his own tendencies, his or her own tendencies, right? Is mm-hmm. what creates this ultimate evil embodiment of evil. I'm curious, do you have any response or thoughts on that other than, Jeff, you said you weren't going to talk about a book I haven't read and now you are? Well, I think it probably, <laughs> I, you know, without reading the book, but I'll, I'll just give you my thoughts. I, I think it probably still goes back to this sense of, no self-worth, that there was some sort of uh, something that happened, you know, from everything I've read about narcissism, there's something that happened to them when they were five years old or six years old or somewhere in that range that caused them to come to this conclusion that they have no internal value, that there's something inherently broken within them. And so they came to this conclusion that in order for them to get anything in the world, they have to manipulate it and they have to lie about it and they have to get people, you know, nobody's going to want to actually just be with them. They're going to have to manipulate it and control it and, and do things to um, make them feel less. And because if, if they don't, if they don't make them feel less, then they're not going to think that they're good. You know right. what I mean? And so I think, you know, it all stems back to this complete lack of sense of self internally. 
Um, and, you know, laziness could be something similar. I don't know. But, you know, um, other people should do it for me. Uh, you know, the sense of entitlement kind of a thing, mm-hmm. which is part of narcissism too. Um, and I, I don't know, but that, that's just yeah. my, my thought when you said that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like it's, it's this fundamental decision that like, and, and, and this, is, this is perhaps cautionary for people who maybe trend too much towards pessimism is like, if you have a good, if you have a belief that nothing good could happen to me of its own accord, because either I don't deserve it or just because the world isn't good, then the conclusion is going to be the only way to get good things to happen is going to be to manipulate. So that's, I don't know, I'm just going to park that in my own mind for a little while and be like, okay. Well, it's, it's, it's true. <laughs> and it's funny because they, they lie about stuff that they don't even need to lie about. And that's when you know it's just such a pathological problem because you'll find themselves lying about, I don't know, how many things they did or whatever. Stuff that like nobody cares. Right. Or, or stuff that's readily verifiable. I've seen that in my divorce cases too, where, mm. you know, somebody's written an email that says, you know, it's good if, um, you know, the child spends some time with you. I think he and I need a break from each other because we've been fighting. Uh, you should contact the bus service and have the bus now go to your house. And the next week, they're filing a thing saying that the other parent stole the child. And, you know, like, right. and it's so readily verifiable. All you have to do is produce the email and you go, where is that coming from? <laughs> you know? Um, and funny. so I find themselves doing things that um, I would never do, like constantly, you know, I saw it in my cases and I saw it with the um, narcissists in my own life. It's like, wow, I would never do that. I would never say that. I would never, you know, and, and yet there they are. No shame. So I'm curious uh, and, 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 you know, for everybody listening, um, you know, obviously Rebecca is an expert on this subject and I find it a fascinating subject. I also want to talk a little bit and we'll get to this here in a bit. I also want to talk a little bit about how you've been able to kind of turn this into a, an information business that's clearly successful because it's allowed you to step away from a really successful law practice. Um, and I know a lot of my entrepreneurial audience uh, is, is interested, will be interested in that. But, but first I'm curious, acknowledging that your, your set of evidence or your set of experiences is, is confined to a people going through a divorce, which I imagine narcissism can, you know, becomes toxic and creates divorce often. And also uh, it sounds like based on who you were practicing with high net worth people, which probably disproportionately attract narcissists. But so given that I, I understand that I'm curious your take on how prevalent this really is in society, these types of people. You know, I've seen varying degrees of, uh, you know, uh, percentages, but basically, I you know, from what I the, the majority of what I've read, it's about one in ten. I mean, that's the same stat we hear about homosexuality. This is clearly, a, although, for the record, homosexuality is not a problem. I'm just speaking st- about the statistic, but it's a very pro- uh, widespread problem for sure. Um, yeah, and okay. and you just think about if each one of those people narcissistically abuses, you know. 10 people in their lifetimes, five yeah. people in their lifetimes, even if it's two, you know, every, there's not a, one person that's ever going to be immune from it. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so then in your case, I, I would assume that the, 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 the default guidance would be if you can get away from them, get away from them. Like don't engage, engagement is, a, is plan B, right? Um, but assuming you, you can't, like you're in a business partnership, you're in a marriage, whatever, at risk of of being laughably oversimplistic, can you give a basic summary of your negotiation or, or management strategy for having to be in those relationships that clearly if somebody wants to go deeper on, that's, that's why you're out there and they can go look at your stuff. Yeah. I mean, what I say is that always comes back to the concept of narcissistic supply and supply is what they need to feed their ego. So all of the things that we've been talking about are actually what is called narcissistic supply. So supply can come in the form of 
prestigious friends, the right money, living in the right house, in the right neighborhood, and all of those things. But supply also comes from what I call the underbelly of supply, which is debasing, devaluing people, controlling people, lining up flying monkeys, smear campaigns, all of those things are also supply. But in, when you go to negotiate with a narcissist, you have to understand the concept of narcissistic supply or you will not get anywhere. Oh. And, um, and that is that they're in, in, they don't know this, uh, it, but you know, it's a subconscious thing. And that is that for a narcissist, there's like the diamond level supply, the one that they'll keep no matter what, they'll do whatever they can to retain. And then there's like the coal level supply, which is what, you know, it burns and it gives them energy and it's like a fuel, but it's not like the best one. And so, you know, jerking you around, treating you badly, making you squirm, you know, intimidating you, all that kind of stuff is actually coal level supply. Diamond level supply to a narcissist is how they look, how they look to the community, you know, mm-hmm. what everybody thinks of them. And so if you, the, the key to negotiating with them is going to be in threatening a source of supply that is going to mean more for them to keep than the supply that they get from making you miserable. That's it in a nutshell. Huh. Yeah, that's, this is so, just so interesting. So here's a, here's a question. And I guess the question in a question. How does a person know if they themselves are a narcissist? And the second level question is, does a willingness to ask the question preclude them from being a narcissist? Uh, you know, I think that... There, you know, again, it, it's this continuum thing, right? So right. I think that there's people who might have narcissistic tendencies who might go, okay, um, my wife is about to leave me or some bad something's going to happen. So let me take a look at myself. Let me go to a therapist and see what's going on and see if I can fix this in some way. And then there's like, narcissists that are just so far gone that they're never going to step foot inside a therapist's office because that to them means that they're going to be exposed and, you know, their survival mechanism is, is kicking in. And so they're really never going to be rehabilitated. And that's honestly the majority of narcissists. So, you know, if, if you are a person who cannot say sorry, who actually doesn't really care, like we'll, we'll do whatever you need to, uh, at the expense of anybody else to get what you want um, and you're not willing to apologize unless you need to to manipulate a situation and you know you're probably a narcissist yeah there's a there's a uh, this random work that I read and I cannot remember for the life of me how I got how I read it or why it made such an impact but it was the the letters of Saint Teresa who was a, a old I guess you know, Christian saint, you know, worked in the church or whatever. I I went to Catholic school. So, okay. So she talked about, she talked about um, the willingness, what she said, the willingness to serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to ourselves, to serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to ourselves. And it seems like the ability to bear that trial is almost, the way you're describing it, that's the litmus test for a narcissist. A narcissist simply cannot bear the trial of being displeasing to themselves. Yeah, I mean, doing that self-study and and taking a look and and being, you know, you know, I've been married for 20 years, right? You know, and both of us have had times where you've had to realize that maybe you're hurting the other person and say sorry and do all these things, right? Right. I mean, you know, when you're in a relationship with a narcissist, they'll only say sorry if they need to just to like manipulate the situation and keep you from leaving, for example, keep you from leaving. uh, Yeah. Get you to just forget about whatever it is that they're talking about. Then they move into, oh, it's never going to happen again. And then whatever they need to say to get you to stop at the moment. Right. So, um, you know, I've heard from some psychologists that some can be rehabilitated to the point where they 
know how they're supposed to act, you know, like, oh, if, if you're sick, instead of just, they don't care at all, which is a lot of narcissists, they know, okay, if I want this person to stay, I should pretend I care, like, how are you feeling or whatever, even if they don't, you know, but I always tell people, it's like, why do you want to be with somebody who's pretending to care? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's no fun. Do you, do you think there's any bit of a, I mean, you talk about something happening when people are five years old. It, do you feel like there's a nature component to this or is it all nurture, so to speak? You know, just from what I've read that different psychologists and psychiatrists have written and what I've said when I've, you know, what, what I've learned from interviewing them, um, I've heard it's more of a nurture component, but I, you know, I guess who really knows? Who I mean, cares? you can't tell when cares? they're born as a newborn, you yeah. can't tell. Yeah. And it, I guess we're never going to be doing DNA testing for narcissism. I, don't, I suppose the, the civil rights base wouldn't allow that allow for that anyway. So, uh, okay. So this is super cool. I, I will tell you straight up if it were just, a, if I had no audience to serve and knowing that my audience is entrepreneurial and many of them are, internet-based entrepreneurs, I would stay in this full-on probing of the human condition camp because I just think this is amazing and I think the work you do is amazing. But that said, in service to the audience, let's talk a little bit about how you were able to take this and pivot out of what I can only imagine was a very lucrative legal career to basically be able to do this full-time, um, which I'm sure has to feel good because you're serving people who really need Definitely. Service. But, but from kind of a tactical perspective, like how did it emerge that this actually had enough meat on the bones to be like your, your new career? And, and what'd you do? Well, it wasn't easy. I mean, I had built, if not the largest, one of the largest family law practices in Southwest Florida. And it was what I wanted to do. But, you know, in my heart of hearts, I am a creator. I am an entrepreneur. And so I enjoyed building that practice and creating the brand for it. I didn't really love the gerbil wheel of running it on a day-to-day -day basis and carrying 50-something cases at a time and having a huge, massive staff and lots of lawyers and paralegals working for me. And, and it was just in the middle of people who were unhappy uh, all the time. It was just, it, it really started to wear on me. It started to wear on my health and my personal life. And, you know, so I mean, I'm not saying for everybody, oh, walk away from your practice. I mean, if it's serving your soul and you're happy, then great. I look at these things as soul decisions. And so for me, I knew I wanted to do other things. I knew I didn't want to sit there and handle people's divorces for the next 25 years. It just wasn't going to be for me. And so when I decided I didn't want to do that anymore, I just needed to come up with a plan. I approached um, another attorney in town who uh, I had a tremendous amount of respect for and had done a He'd been always wonderful to me and um, asked him if he would be willing to uh, let me merge my practice in with him and his team. And, um, I, you know, we came to an agreement where they pay me a percentage of everything I bring in. And I'm still a partner. My name's on the firm. And I still handle some cases. But um, that allowed me to step away and still have an income. Okay. And um, I moved, you know, I mean, I still have a home back in Florida, but uh, we moved to be in California for um, part of the time as well, so that I could also have breathing room. And just, I wanted to focus on my daughter who was still in high school at the time. She just started college this year. And um, that was when I was able to start to think about, okay, what do I want to do? And I was listening to an entrepreneur's podcast, probably something similar to this. And um, I heard Russell Brunson on that podcast, who is the founder of ClickFunnels. And he said, oh, if you want a copy, a free copy of my book, go to this website and get it. And it was like $7 for shipping or something. Mm -hmm. Little did I know it was a funnel. I mean, I was like, oh, free book. Awesome. Right. So I went and got it. And just read the book and it was called Expert Secrets. And I was like, oh, 
cool, I could maybe do something like this. And um, I first did a bunch of divorce master classes, which did so-so, frankly, because I think, you know, there wasn't enough of an urgency, but I do use those now actually as my upsells and downsells in my funnel. Um, so they, they didn't end up going to waste. Um, and, um, you know, wrote my second book on negotiation and, and I started a podcast and I just, you know, I, it, it, I finally had space to actually think. And um, I, you know, I, I, I took um, courses on information, um, I don't know what you call this, information uh, businesses or whatever right. it's called, and um, just really tried to learn about it. And, um, and, and that's what I did. Honestly. Well, again, there's so much, I, I think, gold in, in the story you just told. A few things I'm going to just comment on briefly. One is, I resonate with you because you went out, you spent, you know, I think you said practice law for 20 years, a couple decades, maybe not doing what your heart and soul most deeply longed to do, but doing a thing that was, was enjoyable enough and could equip you and prepare you for like your soul's purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel the same way. I mean, I've, I've floundered. I was a musician and I went between different businesses and I was a good musician and a pretty bad entrepreneur for a long time, but it was all just education. It was all just preparing yeah. me to, to really turn the corner and go, okay, I finally now, you know, the, 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 the implied element of expert secrets is that like you have to have expertise Correct. to sell your secrets, right? So like, it's totally fine. If you're, if you're 17 years old and you're listening to this and I actually have a lot of teenagers in my audience, like you got time. It's okay to go in the workforce. It's okay to get a sales job. It's okay to go, go to law school. It's okay. I know a guy who went to medical school and started a YouTube channel teaching people how to get into medical school and how to mm. study for their MCAT. And now he doesn't practice medicine. He just does that. Like it's fine. Just always be learning and growing. And so I really resonate with you about that. But also you mentioned that you're all, you've always been entrepreneurial and the fact that in law, I mean, I know a lot of attorneys. My mom was an attorney. I went to school with a bunch of people that became attorneys. Most of them are not at a place in their career where they've built the brand, they've built the reputation, they've built the equity to be able to effectively automate their legal income. Like you, you didn't cut off your legal income. You just cut off your legal practice and automated the income for at least some period of time. That's still do, still, still do. I still, I, and I do a lot of the new client meetings still. So, and I let okay. them know, you know, and, um, but I still get paid every month and it's been over three years and my, so I still have a very strong. Meetings. So you're that? essentially, you do the new client meetings. So essentially you're in the customer acquisition. Your legal practice is entirely now probably the easiest part, which is custom for well, for someone who's good and has the reputation, which is customer acquisition. Correct. Right. And then you hand them off. I mean, that sounds to me like an entrepreneur's law practice, right? It is. Let me go do the marketing and yep. then I'll set up fulfillment on the back end. Correct. Yeah. I, I love that. I mean, I think it needs to be noted that like this stuff, it doesn't always happen in the first year, but eventually it all kind of gels together. When you think about leverage, you think about automation, you think about systematization, you get good at marketing, you understand the value of information, you learn how to build funnels and and, and you, and, and the, the, again, the undertone is you get really, really good at things. Like the reason you're able to do this is because you are just such a damn good attorney that you have, you know, capital, you have credibility, you have posture, you have all this stuff, these intangibles, right? Yeah. I mean, I spent years building my brand. I mean, right. you know, people will say, ask me, you know, lawyers will ask me how I did it. And, you know, um, I tell them it, it's, there's no secret magic. Right. Literally I've spoken to every rotary club in Southwest Florida. I've spoken at every league of women voters club, every single, you know, American business women's association, this, that, and the other thing, you name it. Hadassah, the Jewish women's groups. I mean, if they asked me to speak, I was there. I mean, I was writing articles. I was, you know, this was before the age of podcasts and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's no magic. I was busting my ass. That's how I built the brand. Well said. That's a, that's a mic drop right there. Um, so where do you see, 
where do you see this from here? I mean, considering that at least for now, you're kind of in your own category, your own niche, and I'm sure that won't last for long, right? But yeah, well, people will see what I'm doing, they'll start doing yeah. it too. Yeah. I'm but sure. where do you see this going? Like, what's your 10, 20 year vision for how you can really impact the world with this crusade? Well, I'm hoping, I think it was you that had said to me, whoever's first in the space ends up, wasn't it you? Was that you that told me that? I don't know. I have to go back and watch. (laughs) Somebody said to me, who's ever first in the space continues to dominate, like, you know, continue to have, you know, usually 70% of the market share or something like that. Mm -hmm. I I don't, I I thought it was you, but I don't know. But anyway, um, the next thing is uh, I'm going to be, uh, you know, having programs that specifically focus on negotiating with a narcissist in business uh, and then one just for divorce. Right now I just have the one course and it's for both. Um, which is great, and I've sold lots of them uh, since I launched it on March 11th. I th- I still think it's, you know, I could just leave that and be fine. But just being me, I want to make them better. I want to make them more improved. I want, I want to specifically niche something just for people in business and then just for people in divorce. And, you know, I am, at my core, I'm a business person. You know, I've, I've, negotiated a lot as a business person. So I really know about that too. Yeah. The, I I think a lot about, I mean, to your point about the category creator, like I'm in the personal and professional development category and literally this, the number one comment I get most from people who see my, you know, superficially like see two minutes of one of my YouTube videos and don't dig any deeper is like, Oh, you're kind of like Tony Robbins. Oh, uh, you know, he created the category, right? Like we're going to be compared to him for hundreds of years, I'm sure. Um, so yeah, someday will, people will be like, oh, you're like, you're like Rebecca Zone. Yeah, yeah. You're one exactly. of those narcissism crusaders. Um, well, listen, I, since we're out, only because we're out of time, I'm going to wrap this. But like, this is, this is just so fascinating. And I think the work that you do is so cool. And I'm so glad you got to come share it. Um, toot your horn though. How can people come get deeper into this world? Because at least one out of 10 or multiple out of 10 people that are listening, like literally have this issue in their lives. Where do I send them? Uh, So I would, my first choice would be my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Rebecca Zung. Please come, please visit, please watch and subscribe. And I also have a free crush my negotiation prep worksheet, which is at winmynegotiation.com. That's the URL. And it's basically an ebook. It's 15 pages. People have actually told me they've used it to win their negotiations without even buying one single one of my products. So definitely grab that. Uh, my website is rebeccazung.com. I'm on Instagram at rebeccazung. I have a free private Facebook group, by the way, which is Narcissist Negotiators with Rebecca Zung. I started it in at the end of June and I have 17,000 people in that. So come wow. join us there too. What a, what a just amazing vein a horrible vein, but also amazing vein you've tapped into in culture with this. Yeah. So, so cool to see the growth and we'll grab all those links and we'll put them in the descriptions, wherever this appears. Rebecca, I just want to say again, thank you so much for being a guest on Millionaire Secrets. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you to all the viewers and listeners out there. You are the best part of Millionaire Secrets and why we do what we do every day. Thanks again. We'll see you on the next episode. You just finished this episode of the Millionaire Secrets podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please like and share this episode and do leave us a review. Let us know how we impacted you today. Your next step toward creating your awesome life is to join me and thousands of others in the Entra Nation community where you'll receive free training, networking with other awesome life seekers, access to live events, discounts, merchandise, and other awesome perks. Head over to www.entranation.com. That is www.entrenation.com and join us today. And of course, do please follow me on social media. I can be found on all the major social networks at Jeff Lerner Official. Thank you again for listening and please go be awesome.